The following Bible study is from the teaching ministry of First Baptist Church of Royal City, Washington. For more studies and information, go to graceteaching.net. And now, here's our Bible study. We have been looking at uh, God's covenants, and we're going to continue, interestingly enough, not by my plans, but next week we're actually going to have, it's going to be looking at another covenant, but it's going to be one that kind of will really lead into the whole notion of what Christmas should be about anyway. Uh, And so we'll be looking at that uh, next week, but as we're looking at God's covenants, today we're going to look at a land covenant. Now, if you have old study Bibles or old Bible uh, textbooks and such like that, when they refer to this covenant, and we're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 29, by the way, Deuteronomy 29, they used to refer to this as the Palestinian covenant. You know why they call it Palestinian? Because in the 17 and 1800s, when they were talking about that land covenant there, that land, that land was considered to be the land of the... What's the name of that group of people from the Old Testament? What? No. David David dealt with one of the guys. He threw a rock at him. The Philistines. And the word Palestine is actually a poor mispronunciation of the Old Testament word Philistine, which is what uh, Goliath was. And we think of Goliath as just kind of this big rugged guy. But generally, the Philistines, they were, they were fishermen and farmers fishermen along the coast, and then they farmed inland. That's what they were, kind of like, basically like a lot of the people from Israel. And there are different places like this. And so they often, so sometimes you find this called the Palestinian Covenant. But this covenant is actually, um, we're going to call it the Land Covenant, because that land has not been called the Land of Palestine for a very long time. Um, so we're just going to refer to it as the Land Covenant. And the, we're going to see that this is a conditional covenant. We're going to see that it's a covenant that's with the new generation, not with the generation that was at Sinai 40-some years earlier, uh, and it's going to extend then to the following generation. So if you have your Bibles, Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 1, it says, These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab, Moab, besides or in addition to the covenant which he made with them in Horeb. So let's kind of put this in perspective. Jerusalem is up there at the top to kind of give you a perspective. You can see where Egypt is down there. And that second arrow there, that's Moab. It's across the Jordan River. It's on the east side of the Jordan. And the children of Israel or the sons of Israel have been wandering for 40 years in the desert. And they're now getting ready to cross the Jordan. Joshua is going to take them across the Jordan River, bring them into the land. And Moses is talking to them on the east side. But Horeb, or Sinai, as you can see, is down here at the bottom. This is where, in the mountain range that's down there, Moses went up onto the mountain, and God gave them the law. This had been, this was 40 years before the event that's happening in this chapter, okay? Mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, aunts and uncles, everybody 20 years and older, if you remember, when they stood at Kadesh Barnea. Kadesh Barnea, if you can see, just right up, right there, and they had won, they'd come up here after getting the law, and that's when the spies go into land, and the spies go, oh, there's giants in the land, they're huge, we can't handle these people, there's no way we can take them. Caleb and Joshua go, oh no, God will give us the land, we can, we can go in, and because these guys are afraid, or because the other ten were afraid and doubted, they persuade most of the people, and as a result, God says, no, you guys don't get to go in the land because you were afraid. And so everybody, 20 years and older, is held responsible, and they wander around out here in this wilderness for 40 years until all that generation, 20 and older, die. Which means that now the generation that is up there at, in Moab listening to this covenant, they're all 60 and under, okay? Because 40 years have passed. So if you were under 20, now you'd be 60. So everybody now is 60 and under in this time, and they're, they're getting this. Everybody just have a perspective, okay? I'm a map guy, I like maps, and so that's why I take a little time. So we're talking about a new covenant 
with a whole new generation in addition to the covenant that, um, by the way, the law down here, that was a covenant. And we saw that. Uh, we looked ahead to two studies here on that covenant. If we look in verse 2, it says, And Moses called all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt. Now that was true for all those that were 20 and under. So think about it. You've got a group of people here that are that were 20 and down. So now they're, let's say, let's say at five years or four years of age, you kind of remember what happened in Egypt. So you've got people now that are what? Anywhere from like 46 to to uh, um, uh, to 60 like this, that they remember these things, uh, what God did, and to Pharaoh and to all his servants and into all his land, the great trials which your eyes have seen, the signs and those great wonders, yet the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear to this very day. And I've led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you. Boy, that doesn't happen. I go and I buy a shirt and I can come home and I can mess that shirt up the first day. That's me, but think about walking around in clothes. How many of you, how many of you work in in pants? And you buy a good set of jeans and you work in them, and you sometimes find that they start wearing out in the knees from getting down in less than a year. Like three months. What? Three months. In three months, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he said, but your clothes they haven't worn out in forty years. That's a supernatural thing, right? Forty years, their clothes have not worn out have not worn out. Your sandals have not worn out. Your sandals have worn, not worn out. Think about that. You ever buy a nice pair of shoes and they're comfortable and pretty soon you find out, oh man, they're starting to wear out. I'm going to have to replace them. This is annoying. I love these shoes. You know, and you're not going to, you're not guaranteed that the next pair will work as well. So your sandals have not worn out on your feet and you have not eaten bread nor have you drunk wine or any drink that you may know that I am the Lord your God. So the whole 40 years that they're out there, they're eating manna. They're, we think that they're eating quail all this time. We don't know. Some people think they ate them just once, but it, it, there seems to be evidence that they ate it at other times. And the whole time that they're out there, they drink water. There's no wine or strong drink that they drink for 40 years in the time that they're out there, which makes sense because in order to have wine, what do you do? You've got to be raising grapes, and you don't get to do that when you're camping. For 40 years, camping, that's putting it, that's luxurious compared to what these people were doing. And all of this. And when you came to this place, Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan. By the way, Og, if you remember Og, when he's described earlier in the book of Deuteronomy, Og was one of the giants. Does anybody remember how big Og's bed was? It was over 13 feet long. Tells you how big this guy was. He didn't just have a giant bed to have a trampoline or something. He had a 13-foot-long bed because he was a big man. Okay? So Og, king of Bashan, came out against us to battle, and we conquered them. And we took their land, and we gave it as an inheritance to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Those, Manasseh, Reuben, and Gad, are three of the tribes of Israel. And they're going to be over there... Um, they're going to end up being over here on this side of the Jordan. Most of Israel is going to be on that side of the Jordan once they enter the land. <clears throat> and so it gives it to them. Therefore, keep the words of this covenant and do them that you may prosper in all that you do. Verse 10. And all of you stand, all you stand today before the Lord your God, your leaders and your tribes and your elders and your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones and your wives, even the strangers who are in your camp, Strangers meaning non-Israelis. So they had people that were not part of Israel that had come out of Egypt with them, traveled with them, had to keep the law like Israel did. But even they also, he says, the stranger, from the one who cuts your wood to the one who draws your water. So even they're invited into this covenant that you may enter into covenant or that you literally might covenant with them, pass over in covenant, pass over the river in covenant with the Lord your God and into his oath which the Lord your God makes with you today, not 40 years earlier. So this covenant is a covenant God's making with uh, Israel this day, 40 years after the one that he made when they were at Sinai, so that he might establish you today as a people for himself and that he may be a God to you just as he has spoken to you, and just as he has sworn to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I make this covenant in this oath, not with you alone, but with those who stand here with us, or those who stand here with 
with us today before the Lord our God, as well as with those that are not here. And he's going to say that there are others that didn't happen to be present at the moment. And it's going to extend to their children. So as he's talking about this, <coughs> subsequent generations, this, this um, covenant is going to apply to them. Now, what is this covenant? Let's go down to chapter 30. Let's go down to chapter 30. If you remember, chapter 28, if you haven't read ch chapter 28, and we did this in the last study that we were looking at, we looked at the covenant of the law. In chapter 28, God set out before Israel blessings and curses. And if we took that chapter and we divided it up based on the number of blessings or the number of uh, words in Hebrew devoted to the blessings and the number of words in Hebrew devoted to the curses, and this even almost comes out that same way in English, you have one-fourth of the verses, one-fourth, a little piece devoted to the blessings, three-fourths of that chapter in words is devoted to the curses. It's a lot of curses for Israel if they disobeyed the law. Now, were they going to obey the law or disobey the law? The history of Israel is going to be like this. Obedience, disobedience. Obedience, disobedience. Now, I should have made a graph up here because the good thing about that is, you notice it kind of peaks. There's a short moment of obedience, and then they come down here, and their disobedience is long. And then dis obedience, and then disobedience. That's the history of Israel. And if you don't believe me, take your Bibles, go to 1 Samuel and read 1 Samuel through the end of 2 Kings. Or go read 1 and 2 Chronicles. You can read about their history. You can read it yourself. In fact, I think Israel. Leslie was just telling us the other night that with that part of the history class that they're doing with their grandsons, they read a whole bunch of history. They read a whole bunch of history. There's a ton of history in the Bible, and sometimes it's really amazing. Boy, I tell you, that you, you, you want intrigue? You want, you want people that are out for each other? You've got moms. You've got mothers in some of that history that actually kill off all their children so that the mom can be on the throne and she doesn't get threatened by any of her kids taking the throne. Yeah, that kind of stuff went on in their history. And you got, you got one brother that he wants the throne. He doesn't want to be threatened by any of his brothers, so he takes all of his brothers out. Yeah, that's some of their history. Okay? That's some of their history. A lot of sin in their history. And with all of that, then, let's go down to a verse. Uh, we're going to go down. Well, I, let's go. No, I'm just kind of, kind of trying to stay on track. Let's go to chapter 30 and verse 1. It's real easy for me to chase down some of these other very interesting things. Verse 1, now it shall come to pass when all these things that come upon you, the blessing and the curse. What does Moses say there? The blessing and the curse is going to come upon you. You haven't even crossed the Jordan into the land. And Moses, who has led these people for over 40 years now, he knows them. <laughs> you, guys, you guys are going to blow it. I know you are. In the forty, in the about forty-three years since he first, since he began leading them out of Egypt, in about those forty-three years, Moses knows you guys blow it left and right. You blow it left and right. You guys keep rejecting God, and so he says the blessings and the curse. That in other words, they're going to be doing some good things once in a while, so they will get blessings. But he says you're also going to come under the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord God drives you. Remember that was one of the that was one of the curses that you would sin against God, so God would bring other nations against you, and those nations would take the sons of Israel away to another place, and they would be punished. And that actually, and there were two big ones that happened. That happened multiple times. You read the book of Judges; happens multiple times in Judges. But when you read the two big ones in 722, the king of Assyria comes down, Sennacherib comes down, and he takes the ten northern tribes away and hauls them and scatters them out throughout his kingdom. And they never return. You have a few remnants of them, but for the majority, most of those ten tribes are, to this day remain scattered out among the world. Some of them had actually resorted to the south uh, to avoid all that. And then in... Uh, uh, 605 down to 586, you have three deportations of Babylon where they take the um, 
the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and haul them across the desert off to the east over to Babylon. And they're over there for 70 years. From the beginning of that, it's, it's 70 years that they're over there. And so they're going to be deported. They do return, but then we've got another scattering that happens at a later time. And as a result, most of the nation of Israel is still scattered throughout the world. And that's true to this day. Most of the nation of Israel is scattered throughout the world. So he says, when you're out there among those nations, when you bring these things to mind or in the heart, in your heart, you're going, wait a second, God's playing something better for us. We look at the Bible and we can see that God, God pr would provide for us as a nation. And here we're out here under the heel and the thumb of the, the nations, and we could be in our land with what God has for us. And so he says, you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord God drives you. Verse 2, and you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I command you today. You and your children with all your heart and with all your soul, so that the Lord God will bring back you or return your captivity and have compassion on you. And let's ask a question. Two questions, and I just want to think. Did Israel return to the Lord God and obey God with all their heart in 536 B.C.? That, now, that's when they returned from the Babylonian captivity. Did they turn to God with all their heart? They didn't completely. Because one of the things that happens when, you, when they come back with Ezra is there were a whole bunch of them that had married non-Jewish wives, and they come back with those non-Jewish wives, and that was against the law. They weren't supposed to do that. And some of them were priests, and as priests, they definitely weren't supposed to do that. And as a result, they weren't doing what they were supposed to do. And then you go over to the book of Nehemiah and you find out that the people weren't keeping the Sabbath and the people were not involved in giving their tithe. Those were all things for them. That has nothing to do with you and I. You and I, doesn't make any difference what race you marry somebody from. God doesn't have any stipulations on us. We don't have a Sabbath that we have to keep and we don't have a tithe that we have to give. Those were all things for Israel under the law, Okay. But for them, they were not obeying the law. They were not wholeheartedly sold out to God, even when they returned, and they had to get at, God had to get after them again. In fact, the last prophet of the Old Testament, well, it's not that's actually true, the last prophet that wrote, which would be Malachi, he actually writes about how these people had turned from God, and they'd done all kinds of things. He says, you're cheating God because you're not bringing the tithe. And you men are cheating on your wives because you're going, oh, she's getting old. I'm looking after that young thing. That's exactly what it says in there. They were, instead of sticking with the wife that they'd married when they were young, now they want a young gal. And these are the kind of things that he has to get after them for. Go read Malachi. It's horrible. You look at these people. They weren't having returned. They weren't sold out to God. And that was just a very short time after they'd returned from this captivity. So no. So let's update it. 1948, because somebody put so much importance on that date, did Israel return to the Lord God and obey God with all their heart in 1948? No, they have neither. So neither one of these situations, that one in the past or this one much more recent to us, neither one of them are a fulfillment of this statement that we have here in Isaiah chapter 30. Neither one of them are Israel coming back to the land because they have wholeheartedly returned to the Lord to obey him. Okay. What? No. No. I said Malachi. Malachi. The last, he's the last prophet that he's the one that actually. No, that's right here. In, that's right here in Deuteronomy chapter 30. That's, that's right here in the context that he's given this. It says, um, verse 2, And you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I command you today, you and your children, with all your heart and with all your soul. That's why it's a conditional promise. That's why it's a conditional promise, exactly. It was conditioned on their returning to God with all their heart and with all their soul. They're being committed to, to doing what, whatever God said to them. So in other words... This was going to be the case. Now, the next thing that's interesting in the oh, possession of the land is it's theirs. The enjoyment is based upon the obedience. Yeah, and I would so say it's still their land because God promised it to them, but they're not enjoying it as what God intended because of the 
Right. And I would say what happened in 1948 did not fulfill any of this. Because this, this, this fulfillment is a different fulfillment. This is a fulfillment of being in the land and being dedicated to God, which they're not. There's a day coming in which Israel will be dedicated to God and they will be in the land. And not just a few Israelis, all Israel, scriptures say, all of them will return to their land. Okay. Now here's another thing that's in this, that's in this, that's important. And it's actually a very, very beautiful thing. If, but the problem is, Almost all your modern translations miss this. Yeah, almost all your modern translations miss this. So let's go back here. We're going to read verse 3 again. It says that the Lord your God will bring back or return your captivity. That's that word. It's a Hebrew word, shuv. And it means to turn or return. So he's going to turn back your captivity. So your captivity you were taking away, he's going to turn around and bring you back. It's basically what he's saying. And have compassion on you. That word compassion is a word, Old Testament word for mercy. And he will, <coughs> excuse me, and he will gather you again. Now that's the way the New King James reads it. I'm reading out of the New King James in the margin of my Hebrew here, and it says, he will gather you again. Okay. So, when we're looking at what's, what's happening, let, let me see, let me fast forward here. I'm going to, well, look here in Deuteronomy chapter 30. I'm going to have to go back a couple of slides here. I didn't put these maybe in the order that I should have. But it says, The Lord your God will reverse your captivity and have pity on you, and he will... Now, this is from the Net Bible, the New English translation. They have, he will turn and gather. But see, most of your modern English translations are say, he will gather again. They don't translate the verb, shuv, to turn or return. They translate that word, again. Again, is an adverb. It's an adverb that modifies a verb. And it's not an adverb. It's a verb. He will turn. He will return. And gather is the way it states it in Hebrew. He will return and he will gather. <coughs> okay. Question. Your, your Bible says return? You have King James, don't you? I think it's... Okay, so it's a King James Bible. And the King James actually translated, believe it or not, and I'm not a King James only person, but the King James, they're one of, they're one of only two translations out of all modern translations I've looked at that actually translate the word right. I think the Net Bible is close here when they say turn, so I'm giving them, I'm listing them on this. But it's not again. And this is, I think, why people have problems translating it right. Because if you just translated it like the King James says, it says, and I will return, and I will gather. Or he will return, excuse me, and he will gather. What does that imply? He will return. That's true, but there's also one other thing it implies. That he's physically coming. And what does that imply? If he has to return, it means he... He left. It means he was there and he departed. Again, that's part of the curse. God not only sends the them out among the nations, but God himself does not stick around. So let's go. Take your Bibles and turn to Ezekiel chapter 10. Ezekiel chapter 10. Ezekiel is a contemporary prophet to Daniel and part of Jeremiah's ministry. Ezekiel, like Daniel, is one of the people that is carried off over to Babylon. And he sees a vision. He's on a, he's on a, a river or a canal over there near Babylon when he sees this vision beginning back in chapter 1. And here in chapter 10, when he sees this vision... Um, I'm going to look at chapter 10 and verse 3. It says, Now the cherubs, you all know what cherubs are, right? They're fat little babies with little wings. No, they're not. If a cherub showed up here in the room, you and I would all be running for a window or a door because they're terrifying. 
I mean, they stand and they look like they've got covered with eyes and they've got six wings and they've got hands and they've got feet like, like a cow or a calf and they've got a, a face like a bull and a face like a man and a face like an eagle and a face like a lion. They've got four faces around their head that each face in a different direction. I mean, if you saw one of these things, would you just stand around going, oh, well, if it was behind bars like at a zoo, maybe you'd be okay, but... <coughs> no, that's a cherub, okay? In fact, if you want to read about them, Go back to chapter 1 of Ezekiel, and you could read when he describes these cherubs. It says, uh, so it says in verse 3, And the cherubs were standing on the south side of the temple when the man went in, and the cloud filled the inner court. Now this is the cloud of glory that, that came and filled the temple back in Moses' day at the end of the book of Exodus. And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub. Now he's seeing something really, really interesting, because if you walked into the, if you were allowed, which you weren't, only the high priest could go into the room that was called the holiest. You know, in Hebrews, do you know how you make something a superlative in Hebrews? You know what superlative is, right? Good, better, best. Best is superlative. You know how you make things in EST, the best, the fastest, the greatest? How do you do that in Hebrew? You double up the word. So our English says, the holy of the holies. If you translated that in modern English, you'd call it the holiest. And the New Testament actually does that a couple of times. So that's why we have that expression, holy of holies. It was their way of saying the holiest place. Why was that room the holiest place in the tent and then in the temple? Because that's the room where God came down and he lived in a cloud of glory above the ark, that box of the covenant that had the cherubs on top of it like this. And he was above that. And on the walls of that room were cherub that were painted into the walls to illustrate that if you went into heaven, where God's throne literally is, you'd see four cherubs around God's throne. Okay? And so this down here on earth was an earthly example. And God literally did come down and made himself present in the midst of Israel. Remember, only the high priest could go in there once a year. And so what he sees is he sees that glory in verse 4 of the Lord. It went up from the cherub and it went over and to the threshold of the temple. So it's above the cherub there. And he <coughs> Ezekiel gets to see the glory leaving the ark, coming out and going out to the threshold or the doorway of the temple. Why is God doing this? Why is God moving from the holy, the holy place going out here? And it says... And the house was filled with a cloud of glory. So it fills the whole building, not just that holiest room. <clears throat> and the sound of the wings of the cherub was heard in the outer court like the voice of Almighty God when he speaks. And we've heard that before. It kind of has like a, like a roaring sound, <clears throat> which is exactly, remember when God speaks in, in uh, um, uh, when Jesus is, is baptized and then when he speaks a couple times during Jesus' earthly ministry, the people go, it thundered. His voice sounds like somebody's thundering. Anyway, we go on down. Um, let's put on down to verse 14 here uh, in this chapter. Uh, no, that's going to describe the chair. We don't want to do that. We're going to stick on track. Verse 18. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubs, and the cherubs lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth in their sight. And when they went out, the wheels beside them, and they stood at the door of the east gate of the, of the Lord's house, and the glory of the Lord of Israel was above them. And so he's seen this glory departing. Look over in chapter 11 now. Chapter 11 and look in verse 22. So the cherubs lifted up their wings of the wheels beside them and the glory of God of Israel was high above them and the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood out on the mountain, that is the mountain of olives, which is on the east side of the city. In other words, they're watching. Ezekiel's getting to see a vision of God's glory going from the ark to the threshold, to leaving the temple altogether and the city and going out, well, for us it'd be east, to the Mount of Olives. God left the temple. God left the temple. By the way, want a little Christmas thing? Flip over in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. And it was really interesting in studying for this. I did come across a couple of people. 
I mean, <laughs> let's, let's put it this way. If I could come up with it, somebody else had to have come up with it ahead of me. But uh, in Luke chapter 2 and verse 21, I, I came across a couple of people that in, in reading that, that did this, that God left the temple. And you know when the first time God came back to that temple was? Luke 2, verse 21, and when, any, and when eight days were completed before his circumcision, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of their purification, according to the law of Moses, was completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Where did you bring him to present him to the Lord? To the temple. It was the first time God had been back at the temple. Now, he didn't enter because nobody could enter the temple except the priests and the high priest could only go alone. But that was the first time God had been back at that temple since he departed in about 592 when Ezekiel saw that vision of God leaving the temple back there in Ezekiel chapter 10 and 11. 592 BC, yeah. 592 BC. So we're looking at about 580 some years because remember Christ is, if we go back here to our, uh, to this chart then, we have Abraham, we have the law given about 1445 B.C. by Moses on Sinai. The land covenant is about 40 years later. It is 40 years later, according to the book of Ezekiel. David's right around 1000 B.C. And this is the Babylonian <coughs> captivity. And it starts in 605, but the glory doesn't depart right away. The glory doesn't depart until Ezekiel's off over in... Uh, he's actually reached the other end of the captivity. The captivity... It then ends in 536, but the glory of God doesn't come back when they, re when they rebuild the temple. The glory of God never returns. In fact, that's the whole point in the book of Ezekiel, is the glory of God. And you can go read it, and um, I'll give you a chapter here on this if you're interested. Ezekiel 43. If you read in Ezekiel 43, and you can mark that down there on the side of your outline, that's actually when God's going to return, when his glory is going to come from the east, the same direction it left. It's going to come back that same way, and it's going to return into that temple. But it's not going to be the temple they built. It's going to be a bigger temple, much bigger. You read the dimensions of the temple in Ezekiel chapters 40 through the end of the book, and it's a huge temple, much bigger than Israel ever built. Okay? Much bigger than Israel ever, ever built. And to me, again, if you want to be a person that allegorizes that and say, oh, it's just all metaphor, then I want to know, if that's metaphor, why does God tell you that the window is this big here and this big here and it's this deep, and then the door beside it is this big, and it's set in a thing that's this wide and this tall, and it's this deep? Why, why would God give you detailed measurements on how a thing is built and constructed if he just meant this is all a metaphor? He could just use some dimensions to go, well, it's about like this. It's, it's a big thing. It's about like 30 feet. <laughs> metaphorically 30 feet, yeah, yeah. He gives detailed measurements. You could, you could take the measurements he gives and you could construct this. In fact, people have built scale models of that using the dimensions. That's how detailed it is. Which to me, again, is evidence that when God says it, he meant it. He didn't mean for you and I to come to it and go, I just think God's saying, he's going to have a temple that's us. We are the God, temple of God. Then where's this little window and door that's this big and that big and this? You, you know, see what I'm saying? It's just foolish to think that way. We need to take it quite seriously. So with all that, this with the glory departing and moving, we go back to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Back to chapter 30 and verse 3, <clears throat> when it says in this, it says, the Lord your God will reverse or turn or return your captivity, will have pity or mercy or compassion upon you, and he will turn or return. Why is he going to return? Because he's been gone. He's been absent. And he's going to return, and he's going to gather you from all peoples among whom he has scattered you. In fact, we have the same thing repeated if you look down again in verse 9. It says, the Lord your God will make you abound in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your body, in the increase of your livestock, in the produce of the land for your good. For the Lord will, again, the New King James says, he will again rejoice. But that's not. Literally, it says in the Hebrew, he will return and rejoice. It's two things that's happening. He's going to return. And he's going to rejoice over you for good. Okay. So this Hebrew word. Shuv, shuv means to turn or return. 
It does not mean. It does not mean again. In fact, I went through the Hebrew lexicon, or my Hebrew lexicon when I was going through this, and they, and they say, well, sometimes it means again. So I looked up all the ones where it's again, and I'm like, I wouldn't have translated that again. I would have translated that that he turned that thing, and he turned that. I would, I don't, I, I don't, let's put it this way. The lexicon I was using is, is a Hebrew lexicon by a Jewish, an unsaved Jewish man, an unbelieving Jewish man that was writing this for Jewish students. And those texts where he translated it again are all texts where if a Jew took those words literally for what they said, he would be forced to acknowledge that God left and God has to come back. And he didn't want to do that. I'm positive he doesn't want to handle it that way. Anyway, we have the same thing as we already said in that. I said Deuteronomy 30, verse 3, but it should be uh, 30, verse 9 down there. And again, it says, for the Lord will once more, I have in this one, but it's not once more. It's, it's our word he's going to return and rejoice over them in this way. And as we said then, uh, Ezekiel 43, 4, the glory of God, the glory of the Lord is going to return. So the significance of all of this, and we're talking about this, this covenant here, is that the Lord turns back or returns their covenant. He's going to take their, their captivity and he's going to turn it back. He's going to be merciful to them. You know what mercy is? Mercy is what happens when a person isn't happy. And God does something to restore their sense of goodness and happiness. They might lack that because they're sick. And when you're sick sometimes, it's hard to smile. It's hard to feel good when you feel bad, when you hurt, when you ache. That's mercy is addressing that. Maybe you're going through a bad time in life. Something's hard or difficult. Israel in captivity, away from God, away from the temple, away from their land. <laughs> There's a lot of things not good about that. He's going to show mercy. So just trying to help you understand what mercy is. Mercy is when God acts to relieve suffering. On whatever level that suffering is, that suffering can be at a lot of different levels. It says that the Lord returns, he comes back. Implying what? He's left them, as we've already said. He's left their nation, and he gathers them. So again, he turns back, he's merciful, he returns, he gathers them, he brings them. Look in Deuteronomy chapter 30 now in verse 5. <clears throat> Let's go to verse 4, excuse me, to read all this. And if any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring, he will bring you, and the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. Which means that when Israel came back to the land in 1948, or when some of the people of Israel returned, that was not yet a fulfillment of this, because they had not returned to him with all of their hearts with all of their soul, that God was gathering them back and bringing them to himself. This all is contingent on a point in time that is yet future when Israel, out among the nations, will call to mind who he is, will call to mind what he has done, and they will turn to the Lord. Just make sure we're clear. This is not about you and I. This is not about you and I. This is about the nation of Israel. And God has a covenant. He's got more than one covenant that he's made with Israel. And this one is going to be fulfilled. God has a plan for the people of Israel in their land that he's promised them. And if we're going to take the Bible seriously, we need to take that seriously. We can't just take it seriously for what we like for us. We also have to take it seriously for the other people that God deals with. Because we're not the only thing, we're not the only group of people God deals with. People of Israel are also part of God's plan in this. And so he says, And then he will bring them into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. And the Lord then, notice the next part there, he will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. I didn't know if I had a slide for this. Keeping your finger here, flip back with me over to the book of Ezekiel. And turn to chapter 36. Remember, this is, this is connected with them coming back to the land. Now, without going into a lot of details, which we don't need, the physical act of cir circumcision involves cutting off a piece of flesh, which you throw aside. 
okay? This circumcision is going to also involve cutting something off. And notice what it says here in Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36, and look with me at verse 26. And I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. For I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Now, I don't know if you understand what he means by, I'm going to take out your this heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. But the idea of a heart of stone is a heart of stone. In, well, how would you describe that? What would you say? A heart of stone means a person is? They're bitter. They're callous. Jaded. They're unresponsive. They don't what? They're hard. It's, it's, a heart, it's, a, it's a heart that doesn't respond the way God wants them to. God says this, and they're like, whatever. God says, well, I'll do this for you. <laughs> yeah. It's a heart that's, that's unbelieving. It's a heart that says, I don't need that. It's a heart that says, I can figure it out myself. And he's going to, in the same way that he pick, takes this picture, he says, I'm going to circumcise your heart. In the same way that you cut off a piece of flesh, here he's cutting out, taking out this unresponsive, hard heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh, a heart that's now responsive, a heart that's responsive to what God's going to do, in addition to the fact that he's going to put a new spirit within them. And so if you go back over there to Deuteronomy chapter 30, it says there in verse 6 that he's going to circumcise your heart and that of your descendants, and the purpose of that the purpose of it is for you to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. In other words, they're going to call these things to mind. They're going to be, they're going to be returning back to God, but then God is going to guarantee them. Because what again, if you go back in Israel's history, there were times that the people of Israel would turn back to God and he would take care of their enemies, and they would have some prosperity for a while. But pretty soon in the midst of their prosperity, when everything's good, they go right back to living the way they used to live, and they get themselves into trouble, and they're bowing down to <laughs> idols, and they're doing all these things that God told them not to do, and they get themselves in trouble all over again because it's like, well, the problem's gone, and it gets easy, and life gets easy, and we just kind of get careless. And next thing, we're doing whatever we want, and we don't care what God said. But by taking out that unresponsive heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh, the result is, is they're going to love the Lord their God with all their heart and with all their soul. In other words, they're not going to be doing this up and down cycle that they had in their history. In the future, once he circumcised their heart, they're going to just going to be sold out to God, lack of a better term, way to describe it. They really will be dedicated to God. It's not going to be an up and down deal with them anymore. So as he's doing this, we're going to close here by looking at these a couple of verses here that I think a lot of people maybe struggle with understanding what he what he tells them. He's going to talk about what he, how he's going to handle their enemies and such. But verse, let's go to verse nine. It says, "The Lord your God will make you abound in all the work of your hand and the fruit of your body and the increase of your livestock, the produce of your land for good. For the Lord will return, rejoice over you for good, as he rejoiced over your fathers." If you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep or to guard his commandments and statutes which are written in this book of the law, and if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, for this commandment which I command you today is not too, now the New King James says mysterious. Literally, how many of your Bibles say it's not too hard? Okay, some of you probably have Bibles that say not too hard. In the, in the Hebrew, this word that he uses here, it's the word pale, which means it's not too wonderful. In other words, it's, you have the expression, is there anything too hard for the Lord? And literally, that word literally means wonderful. There's nothing too wonderful for God. There's like, oh, God could do this, but oh, that's just too wonderful. God couldn't do that. That's too wonderful. That's the way they looked at it. They didn't look at it as too hard. That doesn't make a lot of sense to us in our modern the way our modern minds think, but that's what the idea is. But he says, this commandment's not too wonderful for you, nor is it far off. Why? You don't have to go up to heaven, he says, to get it. For whoever has ascended into heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it, it's right here. Moses gave it to you at Sinai. You got the law. It's right there. You don't need to run off someplace. Nor is it beyond the sea. You don't need to say somebody over there. It's right here. It's a word which you've heard. You've listened to it. It's right here. He says it's in your mouth. You can repeat this. And it's not too wonderful. Really think about this. 
in terms of the law. Was there really any command in the law that was too hard for them to observe? Really? I mean, in the end, not really. Not, well, <laughs> well, if you have a sin nature. And how many of them had sin natures? All of them. <laughs> how many of you have a sin nature? I'm not going to make you all raise your hand, but you all should raise your hand because you all have a sin nature. And the problem with that sin nature is that's the whole thing with making, with making, with trying to obey commands. Because those kind of commands, they're not really all that hard in the end. It's just that you have a sin nature that just doesn't want to do those things. It's got other things it wants to do. That God said, no, that's not good for you. That's not healthy for you. So it's not like the law really was too hard. God didn't give the law to these people going, oh, you guys are, you guys can handle, you guys got this. But this is an important statement to tell you at the beginning. The law wasn't, from God's perspective and even from Moses' perspective, it wasn't something that really was beyond their reach in terms of the fact that God was saying, I want you to do something absolutely impossible. I want you all to go to the moon. We built rockets. We fly to the moon now. Well, we have. But that's not what he's asking them to do. He's not saying, I want you to dive down to the bottom of the ocean. He says, I'm giving you this law, and it's something you all, you all potentially could do. But God knows they can't because they all have a sin nature. And the New Testament tells us what? That the law was given to prove that we all have sin natures. He used Israel as an example that we all have sin natures, and it's because of that that we fail, even on something as simple as the law. I mean, think of just even just the Ten Commandments. What in the Ten Commandments is what in the Ten Commandments is too hard? He tells them not to have other gods, not to make idols, not to bow down to anything else, not to worship them. About not covet. Not covet. Yeah. I mean, seriously, when you stop and think about it, even not coveting is something you could do. You could rein it in and just say, I'm gonna be content with everything. I'm never gonna look at anything anybody else has and go, I want that. You're just not ever gonna do that. But you know what? The thing is, because you have a sin nature, because you have a sin nature, yeah. We see stuff other people have all the time and we want it. The sin nature in the end is the thing that really catches us. When you get out into eternity and this sin nature is gone, you're not going to go around going, oh, I wish I had that. Why does Josh get that and I don't, God? <laughs> you're not going to be any of that when your sin nature is gone. Of course, by that time, Josh and I, everything I have, he'll have, and everything he has, I'll have, and so on and so forth. You know what I mean? We're all, there's an equality. He's not going to be walking around with cooler looking clothes in heaven than I've got. <laughs> not that I notice his shirts and stuff when he comes to church on Sunday. That was a little joke, sorry. I want you to take your Bibles and I want you to turn with me as we close to the book of Romans in chapter 10. And we'll close with this. The point of the point of the covenant is a conditional covenant. It's a covenant in which Israel had to call to mind who God was, had to return to God, and to return to God, and God would bring them back to the land and he would change their heart. He would be their God. He would love them. But that last statement there, is there is any of this really too hard? If you want to turn over to Romans chapter 10, and it says in verse 6, but the righteousness based on faith. Now this is this is he, he's making a point. He's drawing back on something that Moses said, and he's gonna and Paul's gonna play with the language that Moses used. I want you to think about this. This is talking about us. We have a righteousness based on faith. When you realized your need of salvation, when you realized, hey, I'm a sinner, I can't save myself, there's no way I can get to heaven on my own, I can't do it. But you realize, you hear the gospel, and you hear that Jesus Christ did it all. I, there isn't anything for me to do. He's the one that died for my sins. He was buried. He rose again. What can I do? Just believe. So we have a righteousness based on faith, not based on a bunch of good works that we do. And so he says, the righteousness based on faith is like this. Don't say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Who, who, can, who can go up to heaven and get Christ and bring him down here to do what he needs to do? None of us. That was God's work. God sent Christ down here. That's God's work, not ours. Or who's going to descend into the abyss that is to bring Christ up? And again, another passage to tell you that Christ, didn't, that Christ was not just buried in the surface of the ground. He actually tells us descended into Hades. 
And he went down there and made a pronouncement when he went down there. <clears throat> but none of us raised Christ from the dead. He was raised from the dead by God the Father and the Spirit. And the scripture even said he himself raised himself. What does it say? It says the word is near you. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart. And this is the word of faith which we are preaching. In other words, the gospel message, the message for you is simple. Christ died for your sins. He was buried. He rose again. All you have to do is believe. But we always complicate it. We always try to do, essentially what he's really saying is, we try to do the impossible. We try to do what only God can do. When we add works and all that to salvation, we, we, we're, we're trying to say, well, I, I'll go up and bring Christ down. Oh, I'll go down and I'll raise him up from the dead. Think We can't do either of them. That's his whole point. He takes that statement of Moses and he plays with the language to make a point. The righteousness from faith does not try to do what only God can do. It recognizes all I have to do is believe. Isn't that pretty incredible? Now, our main study was on the covenant, but to me, I think it's interesting to look at this, this last set of verses that he had there uh, on it's not too wonderful and realize Paul uses those and pivots off those words to make a statement here for us to think about with regard to our righteousness and faith. We'll come back next week. We'll look at a covenant God makes with David, and it's going to involve the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we're thankful for the time you've given us together today. We're thankful for the covenants that you made with Israel and that you will keep those. And there is a day coming in which they will call these things to mind and you will bring them back. You've made promises to us also. And in the same way that you are faithful to the promises you've made to Israel, you are also faithful to the promises that you have made to us. Let us take heart in that. Let us be truly encouraged by that. And as always, as we leave this place today, help us to be those that are paying attention to the opportunities you give us to serve others, realizing that there are people in our lives every day that have needs. And sometimes you put those people in our path because you want us to serve them. You want us to be used to help them. Sometimes without us even knowing that we're helping. But help us to pay attention to those opportunities. Thank you for this time today then. Amen. Have a great afternoon. Thank you for your kind attention.